I'm wondering how many of you, when you grew up, ever played church. Anybody ever played church growing up? Okay, you kind of know how it goes. Well, I want to read to you a little excerpt from a book written by Ann Ortland. The book is called Up With Worship, How to Quit Playing Church. This is what she writes. When I was little, we used to play church. We'd get the chairs into rows, fight over who'd get to be the preacher, vigorously lead a hymn singing, and generally have a great carnal time. The aggressive kids naturally wanted to be up front directing or preaching. The quieter ones were content to sit in, in, in the back rows and be entertained by the upfronters. Occasionally, we'd get mesmerized by a true sensationalist crowd swear, like the little girl who would say, Boo! I'm the Holy, Spirit, I'm the Holy Ghost. But in general, if the upfronters were pretty good, they could hold their audience quite a while. If they weren't so good, eventually the kids would drift off to play something else like jump rope or jacks. Now that generation has grown up, but most of them haven't changed too much. Every Sunday, they still play church. They line up in rows for the entertainment. If it's pretty good, the church may grow. If it's not too hot, eventually they'll drift off to play something else like yachting or wife swapping. That's Ann Ortland's opinion of playing church. I'm going to confess to you that even though I've been a believer for most of my life, I have probably spent way too much time playing church. I don't remember when it finally dawned on me that all I was doing was kind of going through the motions without any emotions that maybe I ought to consider worshiping in spirit and in truth. You know, maybe like me, there are those of you who really long for something more than that Sunday after Sunday of singing and preaching and singing and preaching. I mean, maybe in your heart of hearts, there beats a deep desire for some spiritual experience that's more powerful than any religious entertainment you could ever find. Maybe, like me, you also long for genuine, authentic, biblical, spirit-filled worship. I think the most poignant description of authentic worship comes from the lips of Jesus in those words I read to you today from the book of John. I did not read you the whole story. Some of you remember it. Jesus was with his disciples, and he found himself in Samaria, a place where Jews did not normally go. It was the noon hour, and he sent the disciples to the local Sonic or McDonald's or whatever to get some food. He stood at the well, and there came a woman, this famous Samaritan woman. Jesus enters into a discussion with her, something a Jewish rabbi would never do with a woman, something that a Jew would never do with a Samaritan. You might wonder why the woman was there at the well at noon, but if you read the story, you know that she was a social outcast. She would not dare show her face at the well in the morning when the women were there, for she was probably having an affair with one of their husbands. Who knows? But Jesus enters into this deep discussion with this Samaritan woman, this famous woman at the well, and they begin talking about water. They 
talk about both the physical water and the spiritual water. And then Jesus even tells her about her private life. So she decides to change the subject. And I always find this kind of funny. What subject does she choose to debate Jesus in? Religion. Interesting. She kind of hooks her thumb towards Mount Gerizim. And she says, you know, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews, which is kind of a racial slur, says you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, Jesus rather skillfully sidesteps the question of location and instead moves on to the subject of motivation. He said it's not an issue of Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. Worship is and always has been a matter of the heart. Jesus says, and I read it to you already, he says that true worshipers, and I, I, I'm going to ask you the question. You don't need to answer it out loud, but are you a true worshiper? He said, if you are, then you are the one the Father is looking for. You're the one who's worshiping him in spirit and in truth. He said the Father seeks after those kinds of people. He said God is spirit, and those who worship him must do it in spirit and in truth. Now, just think about that little phrase for a moment, in spirit and truth. I have worshipped in a lot of churches around the world, different countries, a lot of different churches as I consult them here in America. It seems to me that churches kind of major on one or the other, but rarely, if ever, have what I would call a balanced worship. On the one hand, you have a, a group of churches that kind of emphasize on worshiping in the spirit. Some of you might call them what my grandpa used to call them, holy rollers. They kind of jump up and down and run around and laugh. And, you know, it really is a really different than what we're used to. But I want to suggest to you that just as guilty are those who worship only in truth. These are the ones who are in the conservative, evangelical side. Dare I say Lutheran. We sometimes take such a high view of the truth that we neglect the spirit side of our worship, the exciting side of our worship, the part that draws us into the presence of God. Now, speaking of this, there's an author named Gene Getz. He indicates that we have so elevated the Bible and so elevated Bible teachers that we have ignored the spiritual, emotional sides of our worship. Listen to what he writes. Quote, our greatest strength has helped create some of our greatest problems. Our failure to provide balanced New Testament experiences for believers has resulted in an emphasis on correct doctrine and correct knowledge of the Scripture, but has neglected other important needs that create mature Christian personalities. Consequently, we've moved towards a sterile, though biblical, orthodoxy, a very dangerous move in the direction of institutionalized religion. I'm going to tell you that as your pastor, my vision for this church is the same vision I've had for every church that I've ever pastored, and that is for both truth and the Spirit. I mean, I've asked a lot of people, why can we not interpret the Bible with integrity and still have worship that actually touches the heart? That would be great, balanced worship. Now, Psalm 109 119 verse 105 says your word is a 
a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so I'm praying this morning that the Holy Spirit will shed his divine light on our study of his word today. And I pray that as we examine this morning what the Bible says about worship, that we will literally worship him in spirit and in truth. And so I'm going to start this morning by dismantling some common misconceptions about worship. And you see some of these on your message outline in your worship folder. Here's misconception number one. Misconception number one is this, that worship always takes place in church. In fact, when you hear the word worship, what do you think of? Most people, oh, we're going to worship today. We're going to church today. You picture pews with people parked in them on their padded little posteriors. You think of a room full of, uh, you know, maybe a pastor or maybe an organist. You picture people down front. You picture candles. You picture instruments. You picture hymn books and singing and preaching. But do you know that a lot of stuff that happens inside the church building is not really worship? And that a lot of worship never actually takes place in a church building? I mean, some of the most moving and memorable worship experiences that I have ever had have only had two people in attendance. God and myself. As I've sat and I've opened the word and I've read it and I've prayed and maybe even sung a little praise song along with it, it was an awesome experience. See, if we define worship as experiencing the presence of God and we believe and we actually realize that God is here right now watching us, then we can worship anytime any place, anywhere, you can be driving in your car, you can be sitting at your desk, you can be laying on your bed, or you can do what I like to do on a Sunday afternoon, relax in my recliner. It doesn't really make any difference where you are. In fact, the scripture makes it plain that the worship, that worship was never intended to be only in a corporate setting, like on a Sunday morning, or as some churches do, Saturday nights or Wednesday nights. One of our challenge verses ought to be Psalm 119, way towards the end, verse 164. It says, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. <clears throat> In fact, friends, I'll tell you, the truth is, if we, unless we learn to worship God every day of the week, we are probably not going to be <clears throat> worshiping him very well on Sunday morning. If you spend no time worshiping God any other time but this hour on a Sunday morning, I want to suggest to you that you can come very dangerously close to playing church. Here's another misconception. Number two, worship is an outward expression. That's a misconception. A lot of people say you've got to be able to see it in order for it to be it. Not necessarily true. Everybody worships differently. Some people sit very quietly heads bowed, hands folded. There are some people, I mean, I can't preach down at Angola Prison without hearing somebody say, amen, preach it, hallelujah, come on, now you're talking. I mean, they talk almost as much as I talk when I preach down there. Some people shout their praises. Some people have their hands in the air as they sing and as they pray. Some people sing very strongly. Some people make a joyful noise to the Lord. Other people just kind of sit there with their mouths closed for some strange reason. You know, the Bible commends all of those styles of worship and even more. God wired every last one of us up differently. We all worship differently. See, my expression of adoration to God may be different than yours, but one thing is certain. 
We cannot worship God when we are sitting, looking around, judging each other and how the other person is doing it. That is not worship, friends. That is sin. Darlene Check, maybe some of you have heard of her. She's connected with Hillsongs in Australia. One of the biggest movers, I suppose, in contemporary Christian music uh, in the world today. Darlene Check wrote, True worship is not about the songs or the vocals or the band or the choirs. All of those things contribute toward a great expression of worship, but the essence of worship is when your heart and when your soul, the core of your being, connects with the Spirit of God. The other night I was changing a furnace fil or a filter in the air conditioner, and in order to squeeze it in there, I managed to pull an electrical wire out. Well, guess what? Not much cool air comes out when there's a wire disconnected. But when you put it back in there, there's a connection and something happens. And I think what she's saying here is when your heart and your soul are disconnected from God on a regular basis, not much is going to come out. But when you're plugged in, folks, then great things happen. Let me give you another misconception. It's that the people on the platform or the people up front or the people in the balcony are the main focus of church. Wrong. Dead wrong. I love the story about the little boy who had been to church on a Sunday morning with his mom and dad. He's now sitting in the back seat of the car as they're driving home, and he's listening to his mom and dad complain about the selection of the songs. I mean, who picked out those dumb hymns? The off-key soloist and how the organist sounded like she was playing with gloves on that morning. And what a boring sermon the pastor preached. And, you know, remembering what his parents had put in the offering that morning, the little boy said, but, you know, all in all, it was a pretty good show for a dollar. See, often we judge our worship experience or our church experience by what? Was the music any good? Could we sing the hymns? Were there any glitches in the sound or the lights? Was there feedback out of the sound system? Was the air conditioning working properly? Was the pastor's message anywhere close to being interesting? I mean, when he asked them a question, did they respond? I mean, did they have an altar call and people came to know Jesus? I got news for you, friends. If that's what you think coming to church is all about, that's stinking thinking. You're not worshiping if that's what's on your heart and mind. Now, don't get me wrong. God deserves our very best. He deserves good music. He deserves good preaching. There, there's no excuse for bland worship of any kind. I mean, I'm thankful for great music. I mean, I'm thankful for modern technological advancements and competent leaders. But, you know, we really don't need those things to worship God. We need to take the premium off of performance and put it on to praise of our God who loves us. You know, I've been in churches. I don't know that it's happened here yet. I can't remember. But, you know, sometimes we clap after somebody sings or plays. Now, why would we do that? Now, there's nothing really wrong with clapping your hands in church. I mean, it's a form of affirmation. It's a, it's a form of appreciation. But in church, we do not applaud for the same reason that people would applaud out in this world. We applaud because God tells us in Psalm 47, verse 1, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God because God is the voice of triumph. Let me give you another misconception. It says that the people who are parked in the pews are the audience. 
That's a misconception. A lot of people got that. I'm sitting in the pew. I'm the audience. Now, if you learn one thing about worship from God's word this morning, it's this. You are not the audience. Now, can I make that any plainer? You are not the audience. Guess who is? God is. All of us, from the balcony to the chancel area, all of us are on stage today, friends. We are all on a platform. We all play a part. In a play, you've got actors and you've got prompters. You've got directors and you've got actors. In worship, those of us who find ourselves in leadership positions like Gwen or Wayne or myself, we are kind of like the directors and the prompters, but we are here to encourage one another to worship. The question when you walk out of here today is not, was this a comfortable deal? Or walking out and saying, my gosh, he preached so early in the sermon today, we thought we'd miss something. You know, but maybe the question is, did you play your part today? I mean, the question isn't, how was the music? The question is not, how was the pastor's message? The question is, did I personally worship God today in spirit and in truth? Well, let me give you a few liberating lessons on, leader, on, on, uh, on uh, worship from, from the Bible. I got about seven. I'm going to go through these pretty quick. Here's lesson number one from the Bible. Worship is always active, never passive. Always active, never passive. See, worship is not just a spiritual warm fuzzy that we get every Sunday morning. This is God's people actively responding to him. For example, and I put some passages on your outline. Genesis 35.2 says, Worship caused Jacob and his family to put away their idols. I wonder if you've ever been to a worship service that caused you to go home and say, Okay, no more of this. Exodus 24, when it said, When the people of God heard the word of God, they worshiped and they committed themselves to obedience. We ought to walk away from a worship experience being with God and say, God, my life's going to be different now. In Nehemiah chapter 8, a book we've been studying for a long time on Sunday mornings, when Ezra, in chapter 8, verse 6, blessed the people, the great God, it says, then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. They lifted up their hands. They bowed their heads to the ground. They worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then after the word had been read and after the word had been explained, it says, all the people wept when they heard the reading of the word of the law. All I'm saying, friends, is that worship is not a spectator sport where you just kind of drift in off the highway and park yourself in the pew for a while and just kind of sit there and watch somebody else do it. That's not worship. Worship is not something done to us or for us, but it's done by us. Here's another lesson, and that's that worship is the central activity of the church. I often say this, that worship is the engine that drives the church From the beginning of the church, when it first formed back in the Acts 2 days, God's people have always been a worshiping people. In Acts chapter 2, it says they continued daily in the temples. Every day they were praising God, having favor with people. Paul told the Christians at Ephesus to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. I don't know if you ever thought about, what is this church all about? I've asked this question a lot since I've been here. Why are we here? Why are we here? I mean, if if this church closed its doors tomorrow morning, what would this community miss? 
what wouldn't happen? You know, in a community where you can't hardly throw a rock without hitting a church, you know, what would one closing its doors cause this community to miss? I think sad to say that we could close a lot of churches in this community and no one would know the difference because a lot of people are not doing what God called them to do and be as a church. I'm going to suggest to you that there are four things the church really ought to be doing. It ought to be worshiping, it ought to be in the Word, it ought to be witnessing, and it ought to be working in the community. The problem is a lot of churches got those things flip-flopped. We get it out of order. We spend our time running around trying to work all over the place, and we never even stop to think about worshiping God. You remember the story of Mary and Martha? If you don't, Luke chapter 10, somewhere down around 38, 39, 40, somewhere in that area. What happens on that day? Martha was busy doing what? Work. Had her priorities kind of flipped back forth. Mary, on the other hand, was worshiping at the feet of Jesus. Jesus even says, Martha, Martha, Martha. He <laughs> says, why are you distracted by so much stuff? There's only one thing that's really necessary. And if you have a worshiping congregation, guess what? A worshiping congregation is one that's in, a, in its word. A worshiping congregation is one that's willing to walk out and say, you ought to come to our church on Sunday. Let me tell you about Jesus. And oh yeah, we do work in this community. That's because God's asked us to be out in this community. Here's lesson number three. Worship is the source of spiritual renewal. Renewal. You know, worship is not necessarily music. I, I'll be real honest with you. Sometimes the music doesn't appeal to me much at all. That's just me. I'm sure you say the same thing. I'll be even more honest with you. Worship is not necessarily preaching. I've been in a lot of places. I've heard sermons. And I thought they were really nice sermons, good sermons, well-prepared sermons. But I wasn't really sure what, the, what it said to me that day. See, worship is really my spirit adoring the Lord and being refreshed just by being in his presence. Worship is what recharges my spiritual batteries. Now, you all know that I, I get a chance to go down to Louisiana State Prison in Angola from time to time. I go down and I teach for a week, but every night I cannot wait to get to worship time. Now, I don't design those services. I don't plan those services. I only preach just a little bit at those services. I just go to worship. And no kidding, I can fly for weeks on worship experiences from down at Angola. You know, worship to me is like a nutritious meal. I think all of us like a good nutritious meal from time to time. I mean, when I worship, it's like it's feasting on Jesus. And, and my body, my spirit is repaired and restored and refreshed and renewed. Or if you're a NASCAR fan, it's kind of like a pit stop, isn't it? I mean, I don't have to tell you the importance of bringing your car off the track every once in a while for a pit stop. If, if, I, if I don't worship God regularly, I just don't function very well. Worship's like intimacy in marriage. I mean, you can have a marriage without any, in, without any intimacy. It's kind of a cold, sterile existence. But the same way you can be a Christian without being intimate with God, through regular worship, but I'm going to tell you, you're not going to have the full spirit-filled life. Acts 4.13 says something interesting. I always wonder about this when church is over on Sunday. 
Acts 4.13 says, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that interesting? When we have been with Jesus, will people notice? Any luck at all today, you're going to really beat the Baptist to the buffet. When you get there at Bryce's or wherever you choose to go, will anyone know that you've been with Jesus other than the fact that, oh, you got a tie-on that says, for God so loved the world? Well, that guy's probably a Christian. He was probably with Jesus. Or by praying over your food when it comes to your table by being nice and polite to the people who wait on you? How would they know that you are with Jesus? Here's lesson number four. Worship is the greatest investment you can make. Hebrews 13, 15 says something about how we should continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. I mean, the fruit of our lips. I mean, worship happens in heaven on earth, but, you know, worship is our eternal job description. I don't know whether this is news to some of you, but you better learn to worship down here because that's all we're doing in heaven. I don't know what you think you're doing in heaven someday, mowing grass or riding horses or playing baseball or what. I'm not saying that that may may not be part of heaven, but my Bible says that heaven is a lot of worship. I wonder what worship is going to sound like up there. Do you ever think about that? I thought this is a strange thought. This is kind of just off. I wonder if in heaven everybody will speak in tongues. Whoa. That's just so we can all understand what's going on. It says there's going to be multitudes from all over the place. That probably freaks out some people. Oh, my gosh, Pastor said we're going to speak in tongues in heaven. No, I, I just wondered that. Most of you probably think you're going to speak in German. You know, because God is a Lutheran. <laughs> I told somebody long, not long ago, they asked me if I was Lutheran. I said, I'm as Lutheran as Jesus was. I'm not sure what that means either. But, you know, we were designed for worship. That we're just wired up to do that. And if, we're, if we don't do what we're wired up to do, we're wasting space. Here's another lesson. Worship brings healing to the soul. David in the 23rd Psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. In there he says, you restore my soul. It's amazing how calm we can get when we praise Jesus. It's amazing how God can speak peace to us as we worship him and focus on him, even though we got storms swirling all around us. Worship is just such a powerful, restorative thing. I mean, there have been mornings, I don't know, has it ever happened to you, you've got up in the morning and you just didn't feel like going to church? Let's say you didn't succumb to worshiping at St. Mattress that morning. But you actually came. Did you ever find that you walked away feeling better for having come? I'll admit to that. There have been days I didn't necessarily feel like coming. And you know, i got to come. But I don't know that I've ever walked away from a worship experience and didn't say, I feel better. I feel better. Lesson number six, public worship 
is either enhanced or hindered by our private worship. Friends, if you come to church on a Sunday morning, if you come to worship, and you kind of find it impossible to center your thoughts on God, chances are that you've not spent much time alone with God during the week. I feel very strongly about that. That our public worship, this time that we gather together on a Sunday morning, is only going to be as strong as what we're doing individually during the week. I look at it this way. There are a lot of things that I enjoy doing by myself. I don't mind sitting in my recliner and watching a baseball game or a basketball game or a football game on television. I kind of enjoy that. But I can tell you, having been at the College Baseball World Series this year, it's a lot of fun standing with about 28,000 people who are enjoying it as well. I mean, I'm a big Nebraska Cornhusker fan. Sorry, y'all. I bleed Husker red. And I bet if you all cut, you bleed Husker red too. You're not bleeding burnt orange. Now that's a whole other subject. I tell you, there's nothing like being in the third largest city in Nebraska on the game day when you've got 85,000, 90,000 people all together for the same purpose. I enjoy private worship. But I tell you, there's nothing like getting together with the people who share the same thing, who sing with enthusiasm and pray with fervor, who focus on the Word of God. Here's lesson number seven. I think worship is liberated by the study of Scripture. All of our lives, in fact, I bet you a lot of you were taught about church the same thing I was taught, and that is that church is the place where you go and you sit still and you be quiet. That's how we raise our kids. We're going to church now. You've got to be quiet. You don't want to make Jesus mad. You know what they think? They think I'm Jesus. I mean, I've had little kids leave church on a Sunday morning and say, Hi, bye, Jesus. It's pretty frightening. See, we tell our kids you want to be quiet. You don't want to cause any problems in church because, you know, we do that because we don't want anything to get in the way of worship. But on the other hand, we don't want to neglect the Bible either when it comes to worship. I mean, if you were to take a blue highlighter and highlight everything that has to do with praise and worship in your Bible, I bet you'd have blue on almost every page in your Bible. Now, when I'm talking about spirit and the truth today, I'm not talking about being, becoming a charismatic church. I'm, I'm not talking about that. This is not getting you ready for speaking in tongues or running around the church like wild nuts. This is only about returning to a biblical form of worship and staying in those biblical forms. See, as a church, I, I know as your pastor, there are some things that we're just not very capable of doing at this church. I mean, we don't have a laser light show. We don't have multimedia presentation. We don't even have a screen or figured out where the screen could possibly go to do it yet. And guess what? You don't have a best-selling author in your pulpit on Sunday mornings. But I'm going to tell you what we do have here. This is what we do have here. We have the ability to get together every Sunday and encourage one another as we worship the God who loves us so much that he would send his son. We have that ability. We have the ability to love one another.
The Bible talks about learning to love one another starting within the family of God. Now, I'm not saying that you've got to hug everybody before you leave, but it sure wouldn't hurt to smile at them or say good morning to them. It wouldn't hurt to cross the aisle. Nowhere in my Bible have I ever seen that you can't cross the aisle or sit on the other side or in a different pew. Just a thought. We have the ability every Sunday to lift up the name of Jesus, whether it be in singing or praying or reading or preaching or greeting or having communion or baptizing or welcoming new members, whatever it be. We have that privilege every week. Every week we have a, a, the ability to teach the simple truth of God's word to do that over and over, and we have the ability to do those things and things like that week after week after week after week. I think that's what makes this place a good place to be. I think those things I just talked about is, is what makes a great church really a great church, the ability to encourage and to love and to lift up the name of Jesus and to teach the simple truths of the Bible and to do it consistently. Now, I don't know what we're going to change in this church in the years to come. I don't know what amenities we would ever think of adding to this place. But I have a feeling that if this church grows some, we might add some. But I'll tell you something, that whatever we add will not replace the work that God is doing here. Whatever we would add would only serve to complement it. Because we're not even capable of enhancing it, only complementing it. But we want to do this as not just a gathering of people who stumble into town on a Sunday morning, but as we gather together with what God calls us, that's the body of Christ. I pray that we do that in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have called us into your family of faith. We thank you that... Uh, you have made us your children, not because of any merit or worthiness on our part, but solely by the grace of Jesus Christ. We thank you for even working faith in our heart so that we might come to know you. Father, may we always be those who worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen.